and welcome to the Unhinged History Podcast, the podcast where each week you get to learn crazy new history things that Angie and I just learned. Maybe you've known them already. Maybe you're actually the ones that uh, suggested we do them, but they're new to us. That's for sure. <laughs> I'm Teresa. Or we've been sitting on the story for our whole lives and we finally have someone to share it with. There's also that. I mean, yeah, that's likely. But I'll admit, Just, you, know, you know, half the time I've got a list of, of stories that I'm going to do maybe one day. And then there's ones that I just go, oh, my gosh, I cannot not talk about this. I was just going to say, I have this list of ones that like I've wanted to share with you forever. But while looking for information on those lists, I learned something else that I'm like, oh, I kind of got to tell her this now. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, my my original list may never come to fruition. <laughs> but it's always good to have that list to turn back to. And you're like, you know, the well has run dry. I've got nothing left run to give. dry. What shall we do? So I'm deleting. What are you, what are you deleting? <laughs> you shouldn't be compulsively <laughs> editing your, your story right now. This is probably a bit too late. No, it's fine. I, <laughs> I'm not actually editing my story. I'm editing timestamps in my story. I'm like removing the timestamps. Okay. When I get to my story, you'll know why. Yeah. Wow. That's all. It has nothing to do with anything other than the numbers were bothering me. So I thought that, while I wait, I will I'll delete. <laughs> yeah, while I'm stuck, you know, doing like all of my crazy things, getting my internet to act right. Internet. Yeah. But I'll just delete while I wait. So you want to hear the story that made my husband so upset that he made me stop telling him I couldn't even get to the worst parts? Yes. Okay. No, but yes. <laughs> so I'm going to tell Punish you this, me. the story of Terare. And my sources are an article from factinate.com, chilling facts about Terare, the weirdest man in history, an article on bbc.com, the tragic fate of the man who couldn't stop eating. Mm, same, buddy. Medical Marvel, Carnival Freak. Secret agent, cold-blooded killer. You can call Terrari anything, but you cannot call him boring. This 18th century Frenchman... But I was going to say you can't call him late for dinner. <laughs> I mean, hold that thought. Okay. Thought being held. He's gone down in history for his insatiable and disgusting appetite and eating habits he could and did eat the most horrific things and even stranger he could eat them all day every day without ever gaining a pound and doctors still don't know it's what so affected gross. him what affliction he had exactly and there is a hypothesis that i'll get to at the very end of this but you know hold all of your thoughts and or just blurt them out right. actually blurt them out i'd prefer that so <laughs> Terrari was born in the French countryside of Lyon in 1772. And while his birth's unremarkable, it's by the time he's a teenager that his gastronomical might's already apparent. At 17, he can tuck away his <laughs> own body weight and food in a single day. That's and so he, gross. He'd eat an, a quarter of a cow all by himself. Like, 
Was it only a quarter because he had to share? I mean, it's just he could eat that much all by himself. That's a lot of meat. When you think yeah. about, you know, okay. like your son can probably on a good day, maybe three hamburgers. And this guy is doing I mean, hot he did roasts. eat that 10 patty burger. He did eat that 10 patty burger. Hot dang. <laughs> but he didn't so do it every that. day, every meal. No, he did it one day. And then the next day he got a 50 shrimp plate ate 18 of them and decided I've made a mistake. Mm. Shrimp might not have been the thing to start with. That's fair. <laughs> yeah. Devastating, but fair. Well, for Terrari, it was devastating because his parents can't handle his enormous appetite. And so since he is literally eating them out of house and home, they banish their own son, kick him out of the house. They cannot afford oh. to keep him. Abandoned by his parents, he falls in with a risque group of new friends, thieves and sex workers. As you do. I mean, who else is going to... Look, those two groups are always there for you. You always know you can turn to them. They will be there. Mm -hmm. And so he he decides to earn his keep among these new friends by becoming part of their traveling act. Of course they have a traveling act. Before <laughs> a con artist would take the stage, Terrari would warm up the crowd with his insatiable appetites. He'd start by swallowing corks and stones and end up polishing off an entire bag of apples. Good Lord. Yep. I'm just thinking like that many apples has to be toxic. You know, at some point you would think that just maybe all of the arsenic in those seeds would start stacking. Is it? A- no, it's I not mean, arsenic. It's think. cyanide, right? It's cyanide in, in apple seeds. Yes. Yes, I think so. Okay. I'm trying but, to remember what arsenic is in now. Everything else, I guess. I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the crazy thing is, is that as he's polishing off all these apples, that's when all of his friends in the in the theater troupe would sneak around and pick everybody in the audience's pockets. I mean, do what you're good at, you know? Hey, they're they're pretty distracted and I'm really good at slipping my hand in and grabbing a wallet. So yeah, match made Probably in heaven. Good. And he's he's getting yeah. food. He's I'll eating. And we're getting more money to buy him more <laughs> apples. I mean, this isn't a bad gig. This works. So he spent some time with this, this group of people, and then he decides to strike out on his own. And he transforms his problematic apple t- appetite, not apple tight, into a meal ticket. <laughs> After moving to Paris, he rebrands <laughs> himself as that a solo. Beautiful. It was an accident, too. I can't even take credit for it. Beautiful, nonetheless. <laughs> <laughs> so he revans himself as a solo street performer and he starts polishing off bags of coins for stunned onlookers. Could you imagine just somebody like literally just eating the coin purse? Do you not know what's on those coins? Yeah, I mean, I, mean I, I guess if the apples didn't do you in, the coins probably won't. Honestly, th- this this just keeps going downhill. So even though Terari eats an un- <laughs> godly amount of food every single day he could blend in a crowd without a hitch soft brown hair slim build about average height 
The only thing <laughs> that's extraordinary about his appearance was his noticeably melancholy attitude, which I get it. He's melancholy. So yeah, you're hangry. He. Other places say he only looks normal at first, and the longer you stare at him, the stranger he appears. He's said to okay. have his teeth stained, his lips are eerily thin, and if he held up his shirt on a day he hadn't eaten enough, you could see an astonishingly amount of loose skin. There's so much that he could gather it up around his waist like a belt. Ew. Ew. And that's not the only thing weird about it. Is him. this an alien hiding in human skin? It very easily could be. Because if it is an alien, as weird as his appetite is, explainable. the smell that he emits is worse. Ew. This man has such a powerfully awful body odor that people struggle to be within 20 steps of him. And after he ate his well, fill... Well, eating coins. I mean, and rocks and quarks and... Yeah. Yeah, but onlookers <laughs> say that after he's eaten his fill, you could actually see the vapors rise from his swollen body and the smell gets worse. Mm. And apparently he's incredibly sensitive to heat. And if you dare get close enough to touch him, he'd be radiating that heat. Hmm. And you shouldn't be surprised that uh, Terrari has some bathroom issues. Oh, does he? Does he? Would have like, never guess. One source describes it as the smell as being positively fetid beyond all conception. I mean, he did put a cork in it. Whoop. So, <laughs> okay. Terari basically, you know, spends most of his time being a street performer, eating anything for money and eating everything for money. But sometimes it, it didn't always work out. And in 1788, somebody hands him an unknown substance that finally overpowered Terrari. He'd eaten something, but unlike any of his other odd meals, it's just not something he could expel. And onlookers realized something was really, really wrong. And that's when they leapt into action, carrying their stinky, sweaty street performer to a local hospital. Ew. Terrari the visual took... I have right now is disgusting. Oh, yep. <laughs> he took a powerful dose of laxatives and managed to expel the mystery food that had finally defeated him. Mm. And ever the showman, Ferrari immediately sat up and restarted his act. He wanted to prove to prove that he'd recovered by being a model patient and said he wanted to eat the doctor's watch and chain to prove this. And the doctor looks at all this and dryly replies that if Terrari dared to do so, He'd slice Terrari's stomach and re retrieve the items himself. So Terrari didn't swallow. I well. mean, then I have so many questions. Okay. Also, I'm grossed out. Yep. <laughs> Stay tuned because it it's it gets worse. <laughs> okay. So, again, there's not a lot for Terrari. He's a street worker. He's working hard. But he just doesn't have a lot in his favor. And so when the War of the First Coalition came aboard and saw France attack the formidable Habsburg monarchy, Terrare <laughs> joined the cause. 
Like so many 20-somethings, Torrey decided to fight for his country, and he, jo- he joined the French army in 1792. There was, there was just one problem. They can't feed him there either. The 18th century army rations weren't exactly buffet-level meals, and Torrey's stomach could definitely tell the difference. The medical marvel tried to survive on the army's meal plan, but Torrey became incredibly weak. Okay, so he became incredibly weak and was even admitted to the hospital. And that's when his doctors, doctors Corvell and George Dittier, gave him the rations of four men, and it still wasn't close to enough. And even though he's getting quadruple Hmm. rations, he started to get creative to try to supplement his diet. Ravished, he'd eat the scraps off his fellow soldiers' plates and plow through the garbage and eat the poultices, hopefully, you know, before they're used. But honestly, the more you read about him, the more I'm, I am i don't know if he cared used or not. Like, you're talking about the things you put on a wounded person. Yeah, yeah. To... Draw the poisons out, draw the infection out, all of that. Yep, yep, that kind of stuff. Okay, I'm so making sure I heard that right. Now I'm going to go puke. Eating the the meals of four men and everything he can get his hands on, Terare weighed barely 100 pounds. And so... Lord. Corville and Didier, I'm guessing on that last name. It's probably not how you say it, but it is how I am going to. And their colleagues are truly baffled by this patient. Terari could eat a seemingly endless amount of anything, and medical professionals investigated their star patient, and their confusion transformed into excitement. What if they didn't think of Terari as a drain on resources, but a thrilling opportunity for some wild statecraft? Doctors began to investigate the limits of Terrari's theoretically endless appetite. First, they served him a meal that would normally feed 15 people, probably expecting that he's not going to get through it. Instead, Terrari finished off all 15 plates, licked his lips, and then immediately entered the 18th century most intense food coma. Good on him. That is an entire dining room table. Plate to plate to plate to plate to plate. I love it for him. I, I don't know food. if he's actually eating food. Yeah, he's actually getting what he needs. Doctors decided <laughs> to try out some far stranger, more disturbing experiments on their hungry guinea pig. They gave a dish <laughs> that pet lovers are not going to like. They gave him a heart or a live cat. And perhaps hardened by his Why life on he... the. I'm sorry, Jack, cover your ears. <laughs> Perhaps hardened by his life on the grimy streets of France, Terrare didn't blink and he ate the entire animal and then vomited up the fur and the skin. Okay. Yep. Terrare's cart, his stomach was cartoonish in its varying sizes. If he hadn't eaten enough, it would just lie flat and it's going to look a lot like loose skin. But after an enormous meal, it would expand, growing larger and larger until it looked like quote, a large balloon, according to Harari's doctor. Mm-hmm. Poor cat. So after... Oh, man, why would they give him a cat? I'm so bothered by this. 
Yeah, I mean, that was one of the more problematic parts because you can you can be upset at him just doing what it takes to survive. But at some point, it's the cruel bullies in the corner going, wonderfully that. What if we give a cat? Yeah. Yeah. They, yeah. yeah, I don't. Sure. So after okay, he's sorry, offended the. I'm, I'm stuck on that. Sorry. Nope. You're, you're not wrong, because after Troy had offended all of Francis' cat ladies, the doctors decided that playing <laughs> the field and to tick off everyone else. So they fed Terrari all kinds of other things, like snakes, lizards, and even puppies. And he finished them all without a second thought. And the doctors were determined to stump their overeater. So they, they decided to up their ante, because this apparently didn't slow him down. They decided to go with the gross-out option and presented Terrari with a live eel. Terari picked it up, looked the doctors in the eye, lowered the entire animal into his throat, and until it was tucked away into his tummy. He ate the entire Alive. thing without chewing. Mm. Quote, Terari's jaw seemed normal when it was closed, but when he opened it, people's eyes widened in fear and disgust, and he resembled a snake unhinging his jaw to swallow its prey whole. Terari's jaw and throat were so large that he could dump in multiple apples down his gullet without blinking. Please this tell might... me you made this whole story up. Nope. This might be the last Damn. podcast Angie ever does with me. <laughs> Because ah. once once doctors realized that Terari could truly eat anything, they turned their attention away from cuddly animals and towards the War of the oh, First Coalition, which is ravaging France. The General Alexander de Bouchernias, I butchered that, realized that the French forces could use Terari's strange talents for good of the country and turn the army's bottomless pit into a top-secret messenger. Here's the plan. Doctors are mm. going to feed Terraria a box with a crucial memo inside. Once the secret dossier is safe in his stomach, he's going to cross borders without any enemy agents thinking anything about it. He'll get to the addressee, and then he's going to use the bathroom and get him the note and walk off. So Terraria's thrilled to hear about this new mission. and I'd he... be out of spy work. I'd be like, no, forget it. I'm done. This, I'm out. Bye. <laughs> I'll take prison time. If I, mean, I was on the receiving end. On the that, receiving you know? end. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. That's fair. Terari, he's thrilled about it, though. Oh, he gobbles down the military documents in front of the army of the Rhine commanders. And as a reward for swallowing this box, the general gives him what you and I would consider a chilling thank you meal. It was a wheelbarrow full of 30 pounds of bull's lungs and livers. And he ate them immediately. Why? I mean, he wastes not one. Does he not, not have taste buds? I think he can, he's in it for the caloric value. Ew. So um, after, Ew. after he eats this uh, stack of protein, because he, he's in it for the protein, Terari promptly travels to Prussia to deliver the crucial dossier to its rightful owner. And as the French army's newest secret agent, he felt like he's on top of the world. Oh, good for him. Mm -hmm. 
Well, okay. So, okay. As much as all this is, this is, but okay. He could do a lot of things. And (laughs) remember how I was telling you about how crazy his body is. So one of his lesser known talents is that he can do this great imitation of a chipmunk because his cheeks are so stretchy and he could hold over 10 apples in them at a time. So multiple that apples can go down his throat. Better. I'm I'm just I just want you to understand how how good he is at this game. And that's okay. important because he's really bad at spying. <laughs> okay. Okay, like I I want okay. you to know that he's really good at that because he's really not good at spying. So he's supposed to be undercover as a German peasant, but he didn't brush up on any of his German. And that causes the Prussians notice something's up and they, you know, the Germans tattle on him. And next thing you know, the authorities imprison Terrari. And then they, there is a sinister general who enters the story stage left, General Zogli. Both he and the Prussians, they're ruthless. They strip Terrari and they subject him to brutal physical torment and even though Terari tries he just can't withstand their assault he lasts 24 hours and then breaks and tells the Prussians everything about his quote secret mission they're both furious and oddly compelled and they decide to see if Terari's telling the truth and so they chain him to the toilet and wait patiently for the letter to appear I'm making the I'm making the sinister bad guy face the snidely whiplash mustache yeah Yes, I, yes, Snidely Whip. Thank you. I can remember his name. <laughs> I don't know why it's so easy for me to remember that and to not remember nearly everything else. <laughs> you know, pick your pick your pick your memories, you know. So it turned out that the French army was really good at keeping secrets. Matter of fact, so much better at keeping secrets than Terrare because the whole Prussian mission really wasn't what it seems. It was just an elaborate trial run to test Terrare's espionage abilities. The crucial document that he was that he was told to swallow, it's a piece of scrap paper. And when the I Prussians read the letter, they realize they've been tricked. They're furious. So they brutally beat Terrare. And little mm-hmm. did he know this was just the beginning. The Prussians saved their most vicious punishment for last. Execution. Typically. They mocked Terrare as they took him to the gallows, slowly lowering a noose over his still trembling neck. As Terrari sobbed, he accepted his fate. Only for everything to change. At the last moment, General Zoigli took pity on Terrari and decided against the execution. He took the prisoner back to the French border, trusting that he would tell his army not to mess with Prussia. Fair. And, and, and if uh, that story is not terrifying enough, another source insists that Terrari's torment was just more disturbing the entire execution, quote unquote, was just for show that the Prussian forces never wanted to kill Terrari. They just want to traumatize him so thoroughly that the French lieutenants would quake in their boots. Okay. Which, I mean, checks, right? Yeah. So his first mission couldn't have gone worse, and he's deeply scarred by the entire process. You know, the whole vicious assault, the foe hanging, <laughs> all of it. And once he gets back to France, to the toilet. Yeah, I mean, none of it is a good time, right? Yeah. Did not check that box. 
Well, the doctors, uh, back in France. Yeah. Back in France. He tells the doctors like, look, I'm, I'm done with this. Do any experiment you want any trial. I just want to get this to stop. And he was determined not to be a freak anymore. So they, the doctors, the same ones who arbitrarily decided to feed him live animals, they thought, well, gosh, let's see what we can come up with. So man named Dr. Percy gives him some wine vinegar treatments, some tobacco pills, laudanum. And on a strange whim, they decide that they're going to start feeding him a diet of just soft boiled eggs. Oh. Shocker. Didn't work. Yeah. Okay. Probably because they didn't have cocaine in them. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that's the last thing I want would be a coked up Ferrari running around. Really? <laughs> I get, yeah, that's true. Could be. He could be a problem. Yeah. So Terari's still insatiable. He's just not getting any enough food at the medical facility. And that's when he turns to a, a real chilling option. So whenever fellow patients were having their blood taken, he'd rush over and slurp it from their veins. Oh, and that that's not even worse. The worst, uh, his low key gets worse. Like the low key vampirism he's got going. Um, mm-hmm. He'd sneak into the morgue. And that that's when he he graduates mm. just to be an outright cannibal. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so this is his behavior is getting worse and worse day by day. And medical staff are really considering placing him in an insane asylum. And I feel like he probably would have been the only one who belonged there at this time. Probably. But, I mean, it really should have been questioned when he was eating the poultices. I'm just saying. Yeah, I mean, that's where it started. You're right to call back to that. And that's the doctor refuses to send him to the, the asylum. And he's he's he insists that Terari is just unwell in his body, but not his mind. So Dr. Percy, at least, is trying. OK. But, you know, more doctors might means maybe more help. Maybe we should get a psychiatrist. Yeah, maybe a whole team. Mm-hmm. Who knows? A gastroenterologist, maybe. Mm. So up until this point, Ferrari had managed to rein in his appetite to animals, inanimate objects, and dead bodies. It's not the best, but, you know, he's not hurting people. But as time passed, he began to crave more. And in 19, or in 1794, the worst possible thing happened. A 14-month-old baby disappears from the hospital <gasps> where Terraria is being treated. When it came time to identify suspects who were responsible for the missing infant, all eyes turned to Terare. If he had hurt an, an innocent baby, he's officially beyond help. And even Dr. Percy, the man who stood by Terare for so many years, was speechless. A furious crowd chases Terare out of town until they lose track of the supposed child killer. And then no one hears mm. from him for four years. This is the stuff fairy tales are made out of. Yeah. So while Terare is just disappeared, um, it's then we have these great notes from his physician, like Dr. Percy, who said, uh, once said that dogs and cats would flee from him, almost like, quote, they knew what kind of fate he was preparing for him. I really wanted to believe that it wasn't, like, maliciously that he was eating them, you know? Like, I was rooting for him for a minute. I mean, like, did you ever... Okay, I watched a documentary once, and I tried to find another source for this, but I couldn't. But I watched a documentary on the Andes soccer team, or the soccer team that got stranded in the Andes, and they resorted to cannibalism. 
-hmm. the documentary I was watching, they had some clinician, I'll say clinician, because I don't remember the specialty specific, um, but who had said that when the mind starts going, when the mind goes into starvation mode, certain parts of your moral compass turn off, which make cannibalism seem like less of a big deal. I mean, that makes sense. Like evolutionary, you just, you turn some things off. You're like, I'm going to get through this period. So this is no longer a bad thing. And I mean, he's starving to death as he's just eating. So that could be it. Right. And that's kind of what I'm thinking that I just, it doesn't make sense to me because I'm not in there, but it's still like this story just, I mean, there's, I I still have more to go. Oh God. Okay. All right. Are you, you braced? Yeah. All right. I'm holding myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Watching my sweet cat sleep, who will never be somebody's midnight snack. I I hope. So I guarantee it. Do, do you remember that fiasco with the uh, poop lev- letters and the Prussian forces? Mm-hmm. That that's not over yet. No, of course um, not. Well, one source claims that the Prussians never managed to read the dummy memo for an utterly disgusting reason. Um, before the forces could extract the box from Terari's waist, Terari beat them to the punch and he consumed his own fecal covered <gasps> box to get it back into his stomach again. Mm. I should have tucked that away earlier into when I was talking about that. But um, yeah, there's that. Okay, so Terari disappears for four years. There's nothing about this story that I like. <laughs> he disappears for four years. Okay, okay, like I, by the way, I hate I hate Terari more than you hate Numa Numa. <laughs> I hate that guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go on. Okay. <laughs> so you go on. <laughs> while we don't know what Terari did, where he went, we do know that he sur- resurfaces for an absolutely heart wrenching reason. He becomes ill with tuberculosis, and he ventures into the town of Versailles to see if a doctor could help him. Terari manages to cling to life for one month after he arrives at the hospital, at which time he's treated by his old physician, Dr. Percy, who comes to visit. After being ravaged by a brutal doubt of diarrhea, Terari passes at just 26 years old. But Terari's strange story doesn't end with his death. Of course not. Percy knew he had to conduct an autopsy. And I mean, like, you got to see, like, what caused all of this, right? So the medical team, they have no idea what to expect. But they weren't prepared for what they found. When they sliced him open, they saw that his corpse was full of pus. And they also learned that Terari's throat was bizarrely enormous, helping explain how he could lower an entire eel into his gullet. And apples? Yeah. They also saw that if they opened his jaws, they could look down and see straight into his stomach. Not only that, but his liver, gallbladder, and stomach were far larger than usual, and his entrails were, quote, putrefied. Oh, gee, I wonder why. Yeah. And his stomach was riddled with painful ulcers. And so while they could have learned more about his body... Okay, so they, unfortunately for them, Terrare wasn't one to let death get in the way of his lifelong hobby, which was really stinking so incredibly bad that the smell of his diseased innards caused them to all give up on doing that autopsy after such a short time. 
Well, I have so many medical questions. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like, I wondered if maybe his entrails were putrefied after he ate whatever that dish was that did in, you know? Well, it it had to be in the works sometime before that. The one thing that that they're really thinking of is that he had an extreme form of hyperthyroidism. Okay, okay. I mean, I guess I don't know a ton about it, but it would make sense when you consider his sensitivity to heat, his strangely yeah. soft hair. I, I guess soft hair is a symptom of hyperthyroid. Okay. Okay. That does that doesn't explain the other things. Like, oh god, I am so grossed out right now. Like, I really don't think his jaw unhinged. I think he just opened his mouth really wide and did all of the other things, and you just you were left with that cartoon impression. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Aliens, for sure. I mean, aliens feels like the safer bet than to think that that existed as a humanoid. Because, uh, yeah, like, I just, I don't know what to do with myself right now. (laughs) (laughs) Now you know why I didn't even get to the baby and Mike was like, stop, I'm done, you're done, we're done, this is done. I'm going to go call Mike now. Um, we have to go to therapy together. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine that therapy session? <laughs> the therapist would be like, okay, like, did she make this story up? <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> she had sources, ma'am. She said Mike's it was just going to be like walking back and forth, like, you know, fiddling. <laughs> can be awful that's so gross mm-hmm. i just i'm so grossed out right now i don't know what to, I, I legitimately don't know what to do with myself see i'm really hoping that your story pulls us out of this funk which i didn't want to go first or i didn't want to go last this week oh well I, you know my story's definitely different <laughs> i can't, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I can safely tell you that um, no one is eating a baby. Uh, in fact, a baby is never even mentioned. Uh, so there are sled dogs. There are sled dogs. Uh, okay. but they don't get eaten. So that's a that's a that's good. I'm so grossed out. Okay, let me just find my story. <laughs> <laughs> I absolutely broke you with that one, and I thought for sure you're gonna be like. Oh, yeah, I saw the episode on craziest things you'll find in the museum. I, You know what? Here's the thing. I, there is a show similar. I don't know what it's called, but it's like that. I don't I know. That's where you found Launcher Larry. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I can't remember. Is that what the show is called? I don't. You, 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 I made up a new name for it, but you had told anyway, me. Anyway. Yeah. No. Okay. So I read on shows that I have the ability to read the synopsis for. I read that to determine if I actually want to be um, entertained by that episode. I'm going to tell you, I would have skipped past <laughs> this gentleman. <laughs> oh my God. Yep. Thanks for. Wow. Okay. Shifting gears. Picker tape parades. My story, it. Uh... <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Just thinking about snack time. So grossed out right now. All right. Have you ever heard of Rear Admiral Richard Byrd? 
Richard Bird. Richard Bird. B-Y-R-D. Yes. Uh, Richard Bird, he, um, British forces. Nope. No. Should, sounds like he should be, though, when you hear his name. Yeah. Okay, because I was getting confused with somebody in the pig war. No, this, okay, it's so not in the that pig was, war. That was Baines. Carry on. <laughs> I love that we just went through our repertoire of wars. <laughs> okay, so, um... I have a handful of sources, so I'm just going to read you a few of them. Uh, the ArcticInstitute.org, Cold War, Cold War Era Admiral Richard Byrd, Antarctic Expeditions, Evolutions, and America's Strategic Interest in the Polar Regions. VirginiaHistory.org. The Navy's Military History website. Uh, article on Medium.com. The Weird, the Weird Closet, The Strange Hollow Earth Case of Admiral Richard Byrd. A fantastic Wikipedia article that gave me a great timeline of his life. Several YouTube videos. One called The Story They Don't Want You to Hear, Admiral Byrd's Diary and His Hollow Earth Documentary. And then a handful of other things. My favorite source in this entire story, and it may be my favorite source name ever, is an article from a group called theartofmanliness.com. I'm not surprised that website exists. Me either. It, I have no idea actually, what I would expect for it to have, but. You know, okay, so I only learned about the website because I was looking up information on this guy and he he did some pretty extraordinary things in his life. And so they gave like a really great write up about one of the events of his life. And I think it's it, from what I can tell of the website, it gives great stories on like what it takes to be a man but it's called the art of manliness and you just i just really get this image of like dude bros mm. and i know that's not right but that's what i see anyway, i mean yeah no I, i'm yeah. with you the art of manliness.com so just you know check it out there's some great articles anyway richard evelyn bird jr was born 1025 of 1888 in westminster excuse me winchester virginia not westminster we're not attending the coronation today <laughs> um he's descended of one of the first families of virginia having notable ancestors such as john rolf and pocahontas his the founding father of richmond virginia was william bird of westover plantation who is one of his ancestors Side note, he might potentially be one of my ancestors, too. However, I cannot find the right corroborating information on that, so I'm going to say only might. Mm. Either way, he's a dandy. <laughs> um, his brother was the U.S. Senator Henry, excuse me, Harry F. Ford, and his father was the Speaker of the Virginia House of Delegates. He was also friends with um, Edsel Ford. And if that name sounds familiar, it's because he's the son of Henry Ford, who okay. had so much admiration for his son's friend that he would secure sponsorship and financing for his polar expeditions from the Ford Company itself. Um, as a young man, Bird, I'm I'm just gonna give you like a real brief, as brief as I can make it, a timeline of what led up to this event because he becomes one of the most decorated decorated military man of his time, like. His chest was metals, like there's no other way around it. So I just kind of have to tell you a little bit of his background. As a young man, he attends the Virginia Military Institute, and after two years, he is transferred to the 
University of Virginia. Then he takes a job at the United States Naval Academy, where he becomes a midshipman in 1908. Um, he is injured playing football, and then also dismounting the gymnastic rings. <laughs> but that doesn't stop him, and he continues on at the academy. In June of 1912, he graduates from the Naval Academy and is commissioned as an ensign in the United States Navy. In 1912, he's assigned to the battleship USS Wyoming. During service in the Caribbean, Byrd receives his first letter of commendation and later a silver life-saving medal for twice plunging fully clothed to the rescue of a sailor who had fallen overboard. In April of 1914, he was transferred to the armored cruiser, the USS Washington, and served in Mexican waters in June the fo- of the following, the American intervention in the April of that year. So when I asked you the other day... um about a redundable oh yeah the santa <laughs> I was Anna. thinking it was the yeah i was thinking it was the same time but it's like yeah no it's later. like yeah I way far ahead yeah um so he was involved in that in january of 1915 he marries mary donaldson ames and they move into a lovely brownstone in the quote fashionable neighborhood of beacon hill boston all right After his time on the USS Washington, he is assigned to the gunboat, the USS Dolphin, (laughs) which also served as the yacht to the Secretary of the Navy. And this gives Byrd the opportunity to come in contact with high-ranking officials and dignitaries, such as the Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Franklin Roosevelt. In June of 1950, he is promoted to the rank of Lieutenant, junior grade. While Byrd served on the USS Dolphin, she was also commanded by the future Fleet Admiral William D. LaHaye, I think I'm saying that right, who would go on to be the Chief of Staff for President FDR during World War II. So that's pretty cool. Okay. Um, During his last assignment aboard the presidential yacht, the USS Mayflower, he endures one more injury, forcing him to retire from active duty in 1916. So he's pretty bummed about that. But that doesn't stop him. In December of that same year, he takes on a post as the inspector and instructor for the Rhode Island Naval Militia in Providence, Rhode Island, under the command of Brigadier General Charles W. Abbott. He is basically like the commander of Rhode Island. (laughs) Um, In World War I, after the U.S. makes its grand entry into the First World War in April of 1917, Byrd oversees the mobilization of the Rhode Island Naval Militia. Pretty cool, even though he can't, he doesn't have active duty. Are you really eating after that story? (laughs) You got me. You are literally the worst. I mean, not that I'm not thinking about string cheese, but oh my god. (laughs) (laughs) freaking monster i'm going to look back down it's safer there (laughs) (laughs) Um, mm -mm. he was recalled back to active duty and was assigned to the office of naval operations and served as the secretary and organizer of the navy department commission on training camps which was like a cushy desk job and also after saying that entire mouthful can we work on shorter names government like you could also just say this dude saw that dude and he met another dude and they were High dudes. Five. And they were dudes and they yeah. Um but in nineteen seventeen he gets sent to the naval a naval aviation school in Pensacola, Florida, where he qualifies as an aviator in June of the following year. 
And here's where it starts to get pretty interesting. After he qualifies in, as an aviator, he is then sent to command the Naval Air Forces in Halifax, Nova Scotia. He's in, he was assigned here from July of 1918 until the armistice in November. November During of the this, same year? Yes. Okay. <laughs> During the same um, assignment, he was promoted to the rank of lieutenant and also given the temporary rank of lieutenant commander, I think because it's wartime. Okay. Um, for these services, he does receive a letter of commendation from the Secretary of the Navy, Joseph Daniels, which later after t- World War II, that's converted to the Navy Commendation Medal. <laughs> um, after the First World War ends, Byrd goes on to do some pretty cool things. He volunteers to be a crew member for the Navy- Navy's first aerial transatlantic crossing in 1919. However, that was to be the only crew men who had not yet seen action overseas. And at the time, Nova Scotia and Newfoundland were both considered overseas by the brass, so he wasn't allowed on that mission. But because of his expertise in navigation, he was appointed to plan the flight path, so he did get to be involved in that. Just pretty cool. Um, Another interesting fact. In 21, Bird volunteers to try a solo non-stop non-stop crossing of the Atlantic which would have beat out Charles Lindenberg's flight by six years <laughs> I almost typed yeet instead of year <laughs> <laughs> seems fitting um, but the then secretary of the navy Theodore Roosevelt Jr. put the kibosh on that Burn was, Bird was assigned elsewhere to the dirigible ZR2 which is formerly known by the British designation of R-38, and all I could think of when I was writing that was, um, like, R2-D2 and C-3PO, and now he is a futuristic galaxy far, far away. Yeah, you did just change that rather dramatically. Didn't I? You're welcome. Um, he missed his train, however, and it's a good thing, because otherwise I wouldn't be telling you his story, because that airship broke apart mid-flight and killed 44 of the 49 crew members, some of which were Bird's friends. At this point, safety becomes a huge ordeal for him. Like, he makes sure everything is in tip-top condition so something like this doesn't happen again. Yeah, I can imagine. Right? Um, in summer of 23, 1923, Bird and a team set up the first air base in the Naval Reserve Program called the Naval Reserve Air Station, or NRAS, at Squantum Point near Boston. And then we get to get a little bit explorery. In June of 25, command the aviation unit of the Arctic Expedition to North Greenland, which was led by Donald B. McMillan. While working on the mission, Bird meets Navy Chief Aviation Pilot Floyd Bennett and a Norwegian pilot called Burnett Blanchon. Burnett? Burnett. During That's a weird year, name because I was just like, I, know. I, I wanted yeah. that to be a chick. Uh, and me too. It's B E R N T. So maybe I'm pronouncing it wrong, but I think it's burn it. Maybe it's just burn. Maybe the T is silent. Just burn. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm running with. During the next year, Bennett serves as Bird's pilot in his flight to the North Pole. And Blanchon, whose quote, knowledge of Arctic flight operations proved invaluable served as the primary pilot on Bird's flight to the South Pole in 1979, or excuse me, in 1929. Fun fact. Um, 
we're going to just call him Bern. Bert Blanchin was born in Norway but became an American citizen and goes on to become one of the recipients of the Distinguished Flying Cross, which I had to look up because I've seen it before, but I didn't know what you had to do to get it. It is America's highest award for aerial achievement, and according to ValorMilitaryTimes.com, it is awarded for, quote, to U.S. and foreign military personnel and civilians who have displayed extraordinary heroism while engaged in action against an enemy of the United States in military operations involving conflict with a foreign force or while serving with a friendly nation engaged in armed conflict against a force in which the U.S. is not a belligerent party. <laughs> so the second one doesn't qualify often. <laughs> going to assume not (laughs) (laughs) um at this point bird finds himself in 1926 headed to the north pole in something called a god help me Fokker f vila 3 trimotor monoplane called josephine ford after the daughter of the then head of the ford motor company ed sill ford who helped finance his expedition Okay. When I read Fokker the first time, that's not what I read. That's all. Go on. Yo, you got it. (laughs) I thought the plane was called the Fokker. Anyway. And this is why we can't have a PG rating. (laughs) Sorry, guys. Bird and Pilot Bennett say they reached the North Pole after 15 hours and 57 minutes, which included 13 minutes circling their farthest north. And the nautical distance of 1,335 miles, or in regular non-nautical miles, because I know this matters to you, that'd be 1,535. <laughs> Wait, so what's the difference? 200. 200 miles so makes why... the difference between nautical and regular. So why is there even, like, what what purpose does that serve? I don't know, and I knew you were going to ask me that, but I don't know. I'm really curious about it, too. I'm going to find us the answer. Okay. Um, they return home, and Bird becomes a national hero, and both him and Bennett receive the Medal of Honor. Bird earns the rank of commander, and Bennett the rank of warrant officer. However, there was some hubbub about the type of medal they would win, because at the time, something called the Tiffany Cross was an option. But people were not fond of it, and typically the Medal of Honor is handed out after valor in actual combat, and there was none in this case. So them being awarded that made it a bit of a controversy, but it also made it possible for Congress to distinguish combat versus non-combat medals of honor. Okay. So there's that. Um, a side note from this, this particular adventure is our friend, the Norwegian pilot, Blanchin, or Byrne. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he casts doubts on the other two's actually making it to the pole in the first place. Because of how he knows how aviation, like what he knows about it, he thinks that they were just shy by a few miles. But even if they didn't make it, a few days later, a completely unrelated crew of the airship Norg did. So, like, it was still crossed around the same time. Okay. By 1927, that doesn't matter because they're all on the same crew together doing a transatlantic flight that also has an interesting event. But I really want to note here. Like, that transatlantic flight was an interesting event, but that's not why I'm here. 
what I do want to know is part of this mission was actually carrying mail from the U.S. Postal Service to France to demonstrate how useful aircraft can be when it comes to mail. And I thought that was such a weird throwback to my last story. <laughs> yeah, he developed Oh, with drone. the ma- the yeah. drone mailbox. Yeah, like, sorry. Yeah, yeah. It took me, I don't know why that took so long to recall. I was like, <laughs> file not that found, was so file funny. not found. <laughs> it gave me quite a chuckle when I read that. Um. Also in this mission, they uncrashed. Unclear on why that was so funny to me. Uncrashed? Like they crashed, but I'm I don't know why that's funny to me. Okay. Um, but I think it's because they they were trying to land in Paris, but the cloud cover pro- prohibited that. So they flew all the way back to Normandy and crashed on the beach. But again, doesn't matter because these guys smell of roses and they sparkle glitter everywhere. And the French Legion of Honor is awarded to Bird by the Prime Minister. And they get a ticker tape parade and the whole shebang as well. Because we can't just shake your hand and say, good job, buddy. I mean, it's still pretty neat. Right? At this point in 1928, Bird goes on his first Antarctic mission. It is a smashing success, and he gets the accolades of being on the first flight to the South Pole as well. So he's got the first flight to the North and the first flight to the South. This wins him promotion to Rear Admiral, also making him the youngest in American history at the time at only 41 years old. Dang. Right? When he returns home, he rubs elbows with all the big dogs like the Fords and the Roosevelts and the Rockefellers as well as the Astors. And this helps him fund his expedition his further expeditions and as a thank you he names places after his gracious benefactors that's a smart man <laughs> right um fifty thousand dollars and this iceberg could have your name this square mile is all yours rockefeller a fun fact of that mission is that a boy scout called paul allman was chosen to go on the mission with him as a way to increase to increase interest in young people in, in exploratory ways so wait, wait. They want to increase interest in young people. So they want they want people to be interested in the young. Be like, hey, no, they hey, these young people—they're pretty cool. <laughs> they want no. <laughs> <laughs> they want young people to have an increased interest in exploration. I'm sorry, that would have been a far better way to word that. Thank you for calling me out. <laughs> Shame on me. Um, but Paul, well, and then you the... said you wanted to exploit them, and so I just couldn't help it. Exploration, not exploit. I hear what I want to hear. (laughs) You do you. But Paul, the Boy Scout, is actually the only person to go on all of the polar missions with Bird. Which I think is really cool. Um, During his second trip to the South in 1934, he opts to spend five months alone operating a weather station. And this is where that. Right. This is where that article about the art of manliness comes in, and it was really a compelling article. Um, He almost didn't make it back, but unusual radio transmissions started coming to the rest of the team that were, like, stationed at the base camp on the the ice shelf. Um, And they finally make it to him after multiple attempts, and when they find him, he is actually suffering from carbon monoxide poisoning from the faulty stove. Oh, jeez. Yeah, but he survives, like... He's doing great once he gets out of the carbon monoxide. 
And this is what Bird has to say about his time alone. And this is what I got from the article on manliness. Um, Bird wrote a book actually called Alone after this mission. It is something, I believe, that people beset upon the complexities of modern life will understand instinctively. We are caught up in the winds that blow every which way, and in the hubbubaloo, the thinking man is driven to ponder where he is being blown and to long desperately for some quiet place where he can reason undisturbed and take inventory. I highly recommend the article if you get a chance to read it. I'll send you the link. Um... So that kind of changes Bird's perspective on absolutely everything. The time alone goes from being like, what's my next award going to be? What's my next medal being going to be? To day to day, what is the most important thing? And he, he settles on your family and humanity as a whole. Like, family and living your life for the simple things is the most important thing. But does that stop him from going to the South Pole again? No. <laughs> So, um, <clears throat> excuse me, I gotta find myself. Okay. So after that mission, he goes on his first mission back to Antarctica, but this is a first because it's actually funded by the U.S. government and not by, like, Ford and his cronies. But then World War II breaks out and he's recalled back to active duty where he wants more awards, wins more awards and accolades. And he is even present at the Japanese surrender in Tokyo Bay in 1945. Whoa. Right. Um, okay. In 1946, Byrd is appointed as the officer in charge of the Antarctic Developments Project and goes on another expedition to the south. For those keeping count, that's four. Four expeditions to, to Antarctica. This event is called Operation High Jump, and it was the largest, ex excuse me, the largest expedition to date. It was supposed to last eight months and included a large naval force designated, I love this so much, Task Force 68. Just I like how you are so thrilled with things like, like names of things, and I'm all, all right, and? Okay, yeah, like, I love it. It's amazing. Because I, I was thinking of Clone Force 99, but whatever. Okay. <laughs> like, I didn't have that that connection in my brain, okay. so that... It's okay. okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I get a little emotional about Clone Force 99. <laughs> anyway, Task Force 68 was commanded by Rear Admiral Richard A. Cruzen. There were 13 U.S. Navy support ships, including the flagship USS Mount Olympus. Olympus and the aircraft carrier, the USS Philippine Sea. Air support consisted of six helicopters, six flying boats, two seaplane tenders, and 15 other aircraft. The personnel on this mission numbered over 4,000. That is a ton of people. Right. And the public story is that they are going down for exploratory purposes to map Antarctica. But for some reason, we need 4,000 people to do this. So what's the real reason? I'm going to get there. But I have to tell you this part first. I didn't know, and I don't know why I didn't know until I was watching the YouTube video about this particular mission, because it was very publicized at the time. Like, there's even a movie made about it. Okay. Um... When do you know what happens when a naval vessel crosses the equator? 
No. So when a, at least a U.S. naval vessel, anyway, I assume it's across the board, but I know for sure the U.S. naval vessel, when they cross the equator, they lower their flags and they hoist the Jolly Roger. And then they throw a mock sacrifice to Poseidon, which typically includes the lieutenant or bosun, hopefully he's a large man, removing his shirt and all of the incense have to come and kiss his belly for good luck. <laughs> yep. I know many sailors and I am <laughs> deeply appalled that I don't know this. I really like I know this sounds terrible but I really hope it's a thing they still do today because it certainly was back then. Um because this ship was headed to and I think this is absolutely fabulous. Because this ship was headed to Antarctica with such a force, they brought sleds and dogs with them, right? And these dogs are, like, highly loved crew members. Like, they baby them. They're their buddies. Oh, yeah. Just like when I told you about Captain or uh, Sergeant Jack Brutus and Sergeant Stubby. Yeah. So So Stubby was smuggled onto an aircraft carrier. Except for these guys were invited on. Like, they okay. they figure, okay, we're going through Antarctica. Our job is to map Antarctica. Oh, well, we need sled dogs. So they have sleds. They have teams of dogs. They have a whole bit. Well, during the mock sacrifice to Poseidon, they also dressed up the, sen- the senior ranking dog as Poseidon himself. And the, all the other dogs had to worship him as well. <laughs> Which I think is absolutely fantastic and i'm so glad to know that even in the seriousness of a naval mission they took the time to hoist the jolly roger and have a little bit of fun that is pretty (laughs) stinking amazing right um at this point they're supposed to cover the eastern coastline and 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 they previously or excuse me they recorded and accounted for 10 previously unseen mountain ranges in antarctica which is pretty cool wow Here's where it gets uh, (laughs) WTF-y. When asked about what he learned, Admiral Byrd, during this expedition, this is what he told the Chilean newspaper covering his story in March of 1947. Okay. Quote, Admiral Richard E. Byrd warned today that the United States should adopt measures of protection against the possibility of an invasion of the country by hostile planes coming from the polar regions. The Admiral explained that he was not trying to scare anybody, but the cruel reality is that in case of a new war, the United States could be attacked by planes flying over one or both poles. The statement was made as part of a recapitulation of his own polar experience in an exclusive interview with International News Service. Talking about his recently completed expedition, Byrd said that the most important result of his observations and discoveries is the potential effect they have in retaliation to the security of the United States. The fantastic speed with which the world is shrinking, recalled the Admiral, is one of the most important lessons learned during his recent Antarctic exploration. I have to warn my compatriots that the time has ended when we were able to take refuge in our isolation and rely on the certainty that the distances, the oceans, and the poles were a guarantee of safety. Okay. I mean, (laughs) I've done many flights myself, and I, I don't necessarily see the danger quite yet. Okay, well, he did. 
Um, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna hearken back to that news broadcast or that that newspaper. Um, that being said, Operation High Jump did actually have a, a documentary film that was made about it, which won the Academy Award that year for best documentary. <laughs> Pretty cool. That um, is. He would go on one last expedition to the south called Deep Freeze. In 1955 to roughly 1956. Now, this... how come that one's not, like, making you so excited? Because that one, like, Deep Freeze. Yeah, that's a good yeah, name. Uh, they workshop that one. You'll, you'll find out here in just a second. Deep Freeze's whole purpose was to establish a permanent base at McMurdo Sound and at the Bay of Wales. And is also said to be the beginning of a permanent U.S. military presence in, in Antarctica. Richard Byrd was only there for one week. But you still don't care about the name. You're I mean, the just... name is pretty fantastic, but the mission was not what I wrote the story for. Okay. All <laughs> right. All right. Carry on. <laughs> okay. So here's a part I have been trying to get to this whole time. Are you ready? I bet you thought you were going to get out of this without any what moments. <laughs> but Nope. I think I took my share of what the fuck moments earlier. So. Okay. So, okay, good. Um, after the war, after World War II, there is said to have been up to a quarter of a million missing German Nazis. Yep. Okay. There is a belief that some could have escaped to an area of Antarctica that Germany had already explored called New Schwabenland. It is believed that Mission High Jump really could have been to invade the Germans in their hiding place, which would account for the military force they brought with them. And that's the 4,000 people. <laughs> right. Seems kind of underwhelming when you think about what they're going to do then at that point, but who knows? Operation High Jump includes several flights over areas that were measured and photographed with the best spy cameras of the time, and magnometers, which would detect anomalies in the Earth's surface, such as hollow spots under the surface ice or even in the ground. They took over 70,000 aerial photographs during this mission. Wow. Okay. So, so now I, I don't feel like Bird's statement of, you know, we could be attacked from one or both poles as, as crazy. Now, now that I understand why he's there, now this is making more sense. Now, keep bear in mind though that these that statement of why he's there is just currently a conspiracy theory because the outward story is they are there for exploration purposes only, and you just need that many personnel to survive Antarctica. However, on the last flight out, bird plane which contained bird and his radio man returned three hours late are you ready to hear what happened yes <laughs> okay do you want his journal entry uh, okay you know i'm just gonna give it to you like this it is believed that somehow he was able to meet with some german scientists and some sort of extra or maybe intra-terrestrials known as the Aronis. Sounds a bit sus. It does sound a bit sus. I mean, if he'd have gone with Silurian and hearkened back to the Doctor Who, then I'd be fine. Okay. Um, 
The Aronis are supposed to be an ancient and very advanced society. However, his secret diary that this account is in has some discrepancies. Um, for one, the specific date that he talks about, um, he references the North Pole, but he was in Antarctica when he wrote this. So there's a little bit of like, um, really, sir? <laughs> I don't think it was a memory error on his part. Anyway, <laughs> Bird goes on to say that he is basically intercepted by the advanced guidance system of this people. And it brings his plane in and gently lands it. This sounds like really bad written fan fiction. Doesn't it? Okay, so... <laughs> him and his radio man land gently... And as they're sitting in their um, cockpit, if you will, they're kind of pondering the situation here. Um, he is met by tall, blue-eyed, blonde-haired men who do not look scary in any way, are not carrying any weapons, and do not pose any risk. They take him to what they refer to as their master, who sits in a glittering city. This is entirely too Western-centric. Okay, wait. <laughs> this is the Admiral's quote. This is So the master of the city is talking to the Admiral. Our interest rightly begins just after your race exploded the first atomic bombs over Hiroshima and Nagasaki, Japan. It was that alarming time that we sent our flying machines, the Fugelrads, to your surface world to investigate what your race had done. You see, we have never interfered before in your race's wars and barbarity, but now we must, for you have learned to tamper with a certain power that is not for your man, mainly that of atomic energy. Our emissaries have already delivered messages to the powers of your world, and yet they do not heed them. This sounds like a really bad, like, I would turn <laughs> off of this, this show on sci-fi. <laughs> okay. The master goes on to say that in, within his city, he can get to the surface world through places like Tibet. There is a stairway leading from the Great Pyramid all the way down. And both the North and the South Poles have tunnels that lead directly to the city. Let's the assume city's... that's true. Let, let, let me, let's, let's, let's say, oh, totally true. Okay. That's still a long hallway. <laughs> a very right. dimly lit long hallway <laughs> yeah i uh, it you're gonna need a ton of fluorescent bulbs there and they're all gonna meh, 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 meh. at some point yeah it's gonna be a problem yep i mean yeah. i i i call bullshit just on Do account you? of the long long tunnel that's it that's the only reason you're calling it <laughs> at any yeah. at any at any rate the great city is supposed to be the city of I don't know, fame and legend, if you will, called Agartha. Bird finishes conversation with the man and is led back to his plane and escorted back to the surface world, and him and his radio man make it back to base camp. The project is ended abruptly at this time. Well, Probably because Bird needs to be put back on his meds. I mean, his anti-psychs <laughs> have run out. And he gets sent home, but not before telling the Chilean newspaper the quote that I had read earlier about we're going to be invaded. Right. 
Bird gets debriefed, and he has this to say about the events of his debriefing. On March 11th of 1947, quote, I have just attended a staff meeting at the Pentagon. I have stately, I have stated fully my discovery and the message from the master. All is duly recorded. The president has advised I am now detained for several hours, six hours, 39 minutes to be exact. I am interviewed intently by top security forces and a medical team. It was an ordeal. I am placed under strict control via the national security provisions of the United States of America. I am ordered to remain silent in regard to all that I have learned on behalf of humanity. <clears throat> Incredibly, I am reminded that I am a military man and I must obey my orders. End quote. <laughs> the last bit um, was total spite. That's just him. <laughs> It would seem that the world governments already knew about this secret group of people and are doing a great job hiding the truth. Or is it the musings of a man who is ready to retire for good? I mean, he's already had three ticker tape parades and endured five months alone under the ice. I have a feeling the five months alone under the ice kind Probably of set had a couple to of... do with this. Yeah he, yeah, he was alone too long. A little bit. A little bit. If he was a parrot, he'd have plucked all his feathers out <laughs> kind of deal. Like this, this guy's. Rear Admiral Byrd died at the age of 68 the following year in 1957. He is buried in Arlington. Among his other accolades, he was a member of the Explorers Club, a Freemason, a son of the American Revolution, a member of the American Legion and the National Sojourners, which I learned is also a form of the Masons, and the National Geographic Society. Byrd believed that Antarctica would be the most important place to study of of study and science in the future. Can I share my screen with you really quick so you can see how magnificent this man looks? Yes. Okay. So I did, I was able to get his journal entries and it includes his flight log of that day when he said he met the master. Um, It's quite fascinating, but it's very long. So I didn't I didn't read it verbatim because it's he tells you everything he saw, everything he did. It includes a woolly mammoth. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't think you would see one of those. You would think not, but he said as they were flying, the light changed ever so gently, like it glittered. And then off to the to the side, he could see a waterfall and lakes and green mountains. You can share now. I... I apparently i can i i don't know do you see this man <laughs> it just says angie has started to ooh wow so crazy and hot <laughs> right um supposedly this right here is the map that he said is how you who how our friends the aronis can travel from the surface to their world I've seen this map before, but it was used to describe Atlantis. Very similarly, wasn't it? I was thinking the same thing. So, yeah. This this one, um, I don't know if it'll allow me to highlight it. I love this. Oh, one we had. That picture is my favorite. <laughs> it is. With him, with his little, like, puffy, uh, Fur, furry, furry hood. hood. Yeah. Yeah. Absolute legend. Absolute legend. Um... And so I chose him because I thought his story was so unique in that this man is clearly a military man, very decorated, very educated, top of his class. 
And then he just has this absolutely bizarre story that he takes to his grave with him. I mean, okay, look, five months alone. Ought to do it, don't you think? Yeah. I mean, that's five months of solitary confinement. Pretty much. I mean, he could Morse code out to his team, but um, that, you know, you weren't having conversations. No. So, yeah, there's my story. And I have 6% battery life left, so I'm doing great. (laughs) When you shared your screen, I kept trying to hit the button to make that pop-up go away, and I had to realize that it wasn't on my screen. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So, yeah, that's my story. Rear Admiral Richard Evelyn Bird. Dang. His crazy Hollow Earth story. He didn't eat a puppy. So winning. Only because there were no puppies available. No, he he just didn't eat them. (laughs) Starving was not his problem. (laughs) That's fair. Yay. (laughs) Well, he's grossed out now. See, I told you we would need that that palate cleanser, that brain (laughs) bleach. You're welcome. So, yes, I appreciate you sharing that because, <laughs> yes, I, I knew what I was bringing and I knew it was. I mean, these are the kinds of stories I just compulsively info dump at a public gathering or party or networking event. I'm proud to know you. You and you, do you alone. Know, do you know that I run a support group on Tuesday nights for people that you info dump on? I This wouldn't surprise <laughs> me. And I am grateful for your continued efforts. <laughs> I mean, they're futile, but whatever. <laughs> it's just every week they let me out of the house and I tell something new to something, somebody else. Yeah, and <laughs> everyone's gathered around going, Tarare. Tarare. I hate that guy. <laughs> Rocking back and forth. <laughs> and there, I couldn't find like a first name, last name. It was like, his name is Tarare, period. The end. <laughs> like I... at that point, you are the Madonna of hideous human beings yeah i'd say i'd say you're winning yeah oh my goodness all right i'm my battery is your battery's gonna die and we're gonna woof okay (laughs) well if you have enjoyed this conversation and can't wait to see how low we can get andrew's battery next week (laughs) then rate review subscribe share this with a friend and you can always email us at unhingedhistorypod at gmail.com Goodbye. Goodbye.